This is episode number 199 with Jacob Leaf. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome everyone to today's episode, very special episode with a guy by the name of Jacob Leaf who has dedicated the last 15 years of his life to serving people and to serving a specific community to change their entire mindset, their entire process, their entire way of living to have it all in life, to improve their lifestyle in a place where poverty is extreme, to improve their education process, to improve uh, the way people feel about themselves. And for those who want to learn how to make a bigger impact, who want to start serving in a deeper way, and who want to learn how to do this for themselves, then this is the episode for you. His name is Jacob Leaf. I'm going to give you a little bit more of an intro about him here in just a second when I get started. But this is all about living a life of service. Again, one of the principles of my book that's coming out later this year is living a life of service. That's one of the principles of greatness. And Jacob has done an incredible job doing that and serving people. And, uh, you know, he's done it for 15 years, done it since he was in college. And it's a really powerful story. He's also got a book out called I Am Because You Are, How the Spirit of Ubuntu Inspired an Unlikely, unlikely Friendship and Transformed a Community. So this is a powerful episode, guys. I hope you get a lot out of these stories and um, you're inspired by it. I want you guys to take action from this. Make sure to share this episode, lewishouse.com slash 199. You'll get all the links to the information and the resources that we talked about in this episode. So excited about this. And I'll talk to you guys more at the end. But without further ado, I want to dive into this episode with the one, the only, Jacob Leaf. Welcome, everyone, back to the School of Greatness podcast. Very excited about today's guest. His name is Jacob Leaf, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Ubuntu Education Fund. And in 2010, he was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. And in 2012, was selected as a member of the Clinton Global Initiative Advisory Board. He splits his time between Brooklyn, New York, and South Africa. Welcome, Jacob, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm very excited about this. We were just having a conversation about uh, some mutual friends with Adam Braun and a lot of other people at Summit Series. So I'm excited to hopefully meet you in person one day, even though this is over the phone right now. Sounds good. Yeah. So next time in New York, we'll we'll I'll have to come by the offices. Absolutely. Um, but you've got a new book out, and I've I've actually never heard of you until my uh, my publisher Rodale, which is your publisher said you got to connect with this guy and you got to learn about this guy. You'll really love his story. And you've got this book out and it's called I Am Because You Are. It's how the spirit of Ubuntu inspired an unlikely friendship and transformed a community. And can you start us back with uh, your first time you went to South Africa and what opened up for you when you traveled there? Sure. So I was, uh, I'm American and uh, my family moved to the United Kingdom when I was uh, 13 years old. So I get to London. It's a big city. I moved from a sleepy suburb in New Jersey. And uh, before I know it, I was getting into a lot of trouble. I was having a hard time sort of fitting in and so forth. And I, uh, one day I came across this giant march in Hyde Park. And it was a free Mandela march. It was to mm. you know, 
and apartheid keep economic embargoes on, and ultimately the release of Nelson Mandela from prison. And before I know it, I started volunteering, and it just inspired me. I'd never been to South Africa. I had no connection to the continent, um, but it was the music, the colors, and maybe this just need to be part of something bigger than who I was. I have mm. no idea, to be honest, what it was, but I was sucked into this. And, you know, volunteering when you're 13 years old means handing out envelopes, licking <laughs> stamps, you know, nothing too exciting. Um, but when I was 17 uh, in 1994, they decided the elections were coming to South Africa, and they decided they would take 15 of us from 15 different countries down to observe the transition to democracy. Wow. And, you know, 17, and I had, you know, I grew up in privilege. I had two parents who went to university, I went to good schools. I had, you know, I, it, was, it was a very easy life in a lot of ways. So it was probably harder for me to have failed and succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get down to South Africa, and we toured the country, meeting with everyone from sort of your right-wing neo-Nazis, your Eugene Tarablanches, and sort of everyone on the other side, your Robben Island freedom fighters, people spent their life imprisoned with Nelson Mandela and so forth. One evening, I was uh, in an area called Alexandria, which is shacks as far as you can see, um, and it sits in the shadows of Santon, which is the economic hub of the continent. Um, it's right in the middle of Johannesburg, looks like lower Manhattan, huge skyscrapers. Mm. And I come across this woman, and she's, and this is really what changed my life forever, my sort of moment that drew me to the country. And she was uh, quite old and quite large. And, you know, you're 17, you think you know everything, right? You're overconfident. <laughs> and, and she yes. says to me, uh, and we start talking, she tells me she's waited in line for 30 hours to cast her ballot. Huh. And I'm thinking, I, I'm, I looked at one look, and I'm like, I don't understand. You've waited 30 hours? And she taps me on the head and says, no, boy, you don't understand. I've waited 85 years. And she walked away. Wow. And, and I'm 17, and that just shook me to my very core. And it was sort of that moment when I said I want to become part of what they were calling the new South Africa. Wow. That just gave me chills. <laughs> so you're 17, when, you're 17 when this happened. Yeah. And you were only there for what, like a week or two, or how long were you we there? We were there for six weeks touring the country, but I, that, that was towards the end of the visit, and I heard a woman speak the next day uh, who was working on the new constitution, and she was a professor at University of Pennsylvania, and I'm thinking, oh, this will be my ticket back to uh, South Africa, because I was getting ready to graduate high school, I'll apply to college in the States, and I'll go to UPenn, and she'll help me get back. So I apply, I get in, and I go down there, and go to find this woman, and she's a law professor who wants, of course, nothing to do with an 18-year-old. But I bug her and bug her. We become friends, and I had, uh, we just got internet in our dorm. And I found a, I found a job down in Cape Town. I'm like, this is great. I bring it to this professor, uh, Dr. Mary Frances Barry. She was a U.S. Commissioner on Civil Rights and a big anti-apartheid activist, and so forth. And she says to me, "Okay, well, um, we'll um, we'll sponsor you. We'll go down. We'll you go down there for six months." And I get down to South Africa, and of course, there was no job waiting for me in Cape Town. It was a complete scam. <laughs> and I'm thinking, God, I can't call this woman and tell her this, you know, there's, what am I going to do? And so I, I left Cape Town that evening and I got on a train and I didn't really know where I was going. About 18 hours into this train ride, a guy convinced me to get off in a place called Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And Port wow. Elizabeth, I like to say, it's an industrial port town on the Indian Ocean side. It's, it's one of these places you leave, you don't go to. It's, uh, I hope not to offend anyone, sort of like the, a, a Detroit of, you know, South Africa. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and he convinces me to get off there and come into the townships with him and have a beer. Now, the townships, you know, this is three years after that I'm the part-time. I'm a white guy. I symbolize everything wrong in the country. <laughs> and this guy's a black South African teacher, and, but I'm up for an adventure, and I was 19 years old, 20 years old, and so I go with him, and we go into this... Uh, he calls it a tavern. It looks like a shack to me. 
And it was, you know, scene in the movies. Everything goes quiet. Everyone looks at me and music stops. <laughs> no I'm way. Thinking, I'm thinking, I'm going to get killed tonight. That's, wow. that's what I thought, right? And at the corner of the room, one guy motions me over. And it's this guy, Banks. Banks, uh, guacamole. And Banks says to me, we start talking. We have a bunch of beers. And at this time, I was an entrepreneur, but I had nothing to do with education or social uh-huh. anything, uh, really. And he says to me, I'm a school teacher. Why don't you come work in my school? And I said, okay. I needed a job. I said, but I need a place to live. And he said, why don't you come move with my family then? So what? that night, I moved in with his family. No and way. I'm living in this community. Um, and, you know, these communities have all the poverty that's, I mean, you, could, you know, it's as poor as any community in the world. Uh, I don't like to compare poverty, you know, one place to another, but yes, right. 90% unemployment, there's rampant abuse. Uh, one in three of the girls that you know, we work with today are raped by the age of 18. It's, it's mm-hmm. very, it's a violent place, it's, but it was also, I probably overly romanticized it, right? Because in the back of my mind, I knew I could always leave. Mm-hmm. And these six months in these communities, I, I didn't leave this, this area during this entire six months. And I immersed wow. myself here. And what I saw, though, for all these organizations, big global nonprofits, you know, everyone dumping money into South Africa post-apartheid, all this philanthropic money, but everyone was defining success by, you know, how many computers they'd pass out, how many library books they'd hand out, or how many cups of soup they'd hand out. And I kept looking at these little kids who'd been abused or living in these shacks, and I'm thinking, how is a cup of soup and a wind-up computer going to change your life? Mm. It's not how I got to where I was. And I just kept thinking of how much was invested in my life. And that was really the beginning of a Ubuntu Education Fund. So I, um, I left South Africa after six months, and I went back to uh, Philadelphia and held a raffle on my campus. Back then, uh, I don't know how old you are, but they used to give out credit cards on college campuses. So I took eight of them. <laughs> and uh, I started a Ubuntu Education Fund. And the idea was... Let's take the bottom of the bottom, the kids who've been raped, the kids who've been lost their parents, and let's invest in them the same way, you know, someone invested in me. And let's work with them every day of their lives. You know, in our nonprofit sector, it's all about what's the exit strategy. You know, there's no exit strategy when you raise kids. Hmm. And, you know, and, and, you know, over the last 17 years, we've built this model where today we call it cradle to career, but we actually start with pregnant mothers today. We ensure we take HIV positive pregnant mothers and we ensure a healthy birth and then we work with these kids every day of their lives until they're into they're employed, either through a job training program or university. Wow. So wait a minute, you're were you still in college when you took this six month trip there? Yes, I was. So did you like skip a semester or, or what Yeah, I did my professor helped me take the my exams early and I went through the summer and I sort of stayed later than I was supposed to. Wow. So what how did you have the courage to just jump on a train and go eighteen hours in any direction that you had no clue where you were going? I mean how I did you know I had to get out of Cape Town. It wasn't what I was looking for at a bet. You know, I got there, it was just I was totally scammed and I felt wow. afraid and I just was looking for something. I was, you know, I felt very comfortable. I was, I traveled my whole life and I felt, even though I was quite young then, I felt right. very comfortable doing that. And part of it was, right, just uh, my own naivete, right, to, uh, you know, and then sense of adventure. You're 19. Yeah, that's true. And you were by yourself. You know, far you'll go. Wow, that's crazy. So, okay. So, you, so tell me what is, what first does me, uh, does Ubuntu mean? So, Ubuntu, those best described to me when I, the last, after six months living with Banks and his family in the townships, he brought me to the train station and 
Uh, it was interesting. Actually, that morning, he woke me at 4 in my morning. It was the last day I was there before bringing me to the train station. And he wakes me at 4 in the morning. He takes me somewhere to this area called White Location. It's a shack as far as you can see. And in front of each shack was a fire. And I saw these little girls in front of each shack holding bricks over the fire and then using the bricks to iron their school uniforms so they oh look proud to go to school. And that was the moment I'm like, shit, I gotta, we got to do something. Like, wow. That was, uh, that was like, the fire was literally burning. Like These kids wanted to go to school. There was more, something we could do. And, um, and so Banks brings me to the train station from there. And he thinks he'll never see me again. And, you know, I'm going to go to board this train. I said, let me ask you something. What, what is this thing that you have that you just invited me into your home? Mm. Like, I represented everything wrong in South Africa as a white guy on the surface. Yet you get, you know, you brought me into your home. You have a tiny home. You let me share a room with your children. You, wow. and he, said, he said, oh, that's Ubuntu. I said, what do you mean that's Ubuntu? He said, well, it doesn't matter your race, your politics, or your religion. Shouldn't the fact that we're human beings be enough that we treat each other with respect? Mm. And I'm thinking, God, what a beautiful concept. And it's what I experienced over, it's a way of life. You know, Archbishop Tutu, Desmond uh, Tutu, uh, who works very closely with us, always describes Ubuntu as a person as a person through a person, which is something I really like. That, uh, you know, as human beings, we're defined as people by the way we treat each other. Mm. Powerful amazing. stuff. It's amazing. Um, and that's why I called the the book is I am because you are, which really means Ubuntu. Right. So, so what did you decide to do next? You did the six month experience there. You went back, and then what made you want to come back and really? I went back, and I said um, I couldn't care less about school. By the time I got back, I was <laughs> like, I got to do something, and I had to, I knew I could do it. Uh, I knew yeah. I had that ability to uh, mobilize resources and people and. Um, I just started gathering friends around and telling them my stories. And, and, and you know, this was a time before, right, Teach America, before all these social, before social entrepreneurship was even a word on college campuses, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, my college advisor said to me, oh, this is nice, but what are you really going to do when the summer ends? This is a nice little project. It wasn't like today where everyone goes into the nonprofit sector. Yeah. I had all these people telling me, you can't do that. You can't, right. can't do that. You can't do it. And I think that probably... Uh, Drove fire me the fuel, fire the fuel, yeah, yeah, fuel the fire. Absolutely, um, I hate being told I can't do something. <laughs> I love that. So, so when did you go back then? After you came, you came, so, you came back when um, you were twenty, twenty one, and then you went back. So I'm twenty one. We, I'm graduating college. I uh, raised some money, and I decided. Before, I was like, I decided I'm really going to do this, right? But I had no money, and the first thing I did actually with a buddy of mine said, um, is I got in my car and we drove up to the Arctic Ocean, and we spent uh, four months driving through Canada and Alaska and camping and fishing and just trying to get away, and I sort of worked on my whole business plan, worked on this all as I was out there. Um, by the time I got back, I, uh, my family lives up in Maine. I took a job on a commercial fishing boat, and in the evenings, I would write these grant proposals, and when I got my first grant proposal, I quit that job and moved to Philadelphia and <laughs> really got a boon to going, and that was 1999. Wow. So how much have you raised to date with this organization or is that, is that oh, over $40 million? Um, 40 million. Wow. Yeah, 15 we, years, right? Yeah. And it's the center of what we, I mean, so we raise 6 million bucks a year right now. And the centerpiece of everything we do is our Ubuntu center. The Ubuntu center was a, it's a really fascinating project. So about 2005, I realized we had outgrown our space and we need to build a, a new complex. A is this your space in, in South Africa? In South Africa. Or? Okay. Yeah. In South Africa. And I realized, 
we we had outgrown our headquarters. And I set out to interview architects. And everyone I interviewed in South Africa kept saying, well, you can't build this in the townships. You know, or show me an example. And I'm saying, no, this building's never been built before. And I finally met a guy out in Northern California who'd originally from the area working, but had been kicked out of the country in the 60s uh, for opposing the police and so forth. And uh, I, I, I spoke to this guy on the phone within three minutes. I hired him, and we set out to build a building that would win Global Architecture Awards. Wow. And people said, oh, that's my that, that's Jacob's vanity project. What's, he, what's the point of that when there's so much poverty? Why do you have to spend $7 million just on a building? But the the point of it all was because we want to prove that access to great education, health care, shouldn't be a privilege for the privilege for those you know raised in London or New York or L.A. It should be a child's right, yeah. and that was important. So we set out to build this building, and five years later we opened a center that's as nice as any education or health facility you'll find in Manhattan, wow. and it's powered by wind and sun. You know, Cisco wired it. Uh, Beck and Dickinson built our pharmacy and our clinic. Uh, Apple built the first iMac lab in the whole country there. And it's, it's, it's state-of-the-art education and healthcare in the middle of the shacks. Mm. And that's the way you change people's lives. It's not about, you know, the question I'm always asking them in New York fundraising or in Northern California is, we love what you're doing, but how can you reach more kids for less money? And that's the wrong question. Mm. Interesting. You know, it's not the question I ask with my own children. Right? It's, right? it's what does it actually take to take these kids out of poverty? Mm. Um, and what we've learned is it takes a huge amount of resources. It's not cheap. And a child living in a shack in Africa um, who's been abused needs as much, if not more, than your child living on Park Avenue in Manhattan. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. and they probably need to feel like they're worthy of it, too. And if they you know, just get a little bit as opposed to having it all essentially right in front of them, then they're never going to believe they're worthy to have it all until it's, you know, until they see that and they experience it and they get a taste of it. Well, you know, you see, that's actually such an interesting point because when we were building this center, I mean, it took us three and a half years to construct. We had one of these huge billboards outside where it was going to be outside the grounds. And it was a rendering of what the building would look like. Mm -hmm. And the kids would come around it every afternoon and they would talk about it and the word they would use as museum is how it translates basically in their language or closer and they would say that this that why why aren't you building this in town town meaning the other because they felt it didn't belong in their community it was too nice mm. and that's why we had a I mean, feelings of inferiority um is one of the greatest legacies of apartheid yeah yeah that i don't belong and we needed to we needed to build this and sure you know the people who criticized us are from the funding community you know, why would you spend that much money when there's so much poverty are the same people who send their kids to $50,000 a year exactly. elementary schools. Exactly. And it's okay, you know, and, the, and I'm dealing with the good people here. Right, exactly. Wow. So what does it all inv- uh, include in this center? Healthcare, schools, what is, what's included? Psychosocial support, emotional, you name it. We do it. Everything from, we've got the, we got a robot. Right now our kids are build our high school girls are building a robot. In the robotics program, we've got, you know, kids doing a yearbook in the, you know, computer lab. We've got an early childhood program that's on par with anything you find anywhere. And so our whole model is about not geographic. We're not about geographical expansion. Scale for us isn't about more locations across different regions. It's about how deep do you have to go into one child's life to change. So we've got 2,000 children in our program from ranging from zero or in the mother's womb all the way through to, you know, university and post into employment. And if we can take 2,000 children who would have otherwise gone down a life of whether it's crime, survival, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. That 
and get them into employment will will change the world. Wow. And so my passion is about how do we challenge people to think differently about philanthropy and not just say it's about reaching more and more kids because what we're doing is we're reaching them with a cup of soup as opposed to you know reaching less kids and actually changing their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. So do you – man, this is so fascinating. Do you have um, – do you build schools as well, or is it just a center that has like all these different programs there, or do you work with the whole community, or how does it work? We work with the whole community. We work in a seven-kilometer zone. Um, we don't actually build we – have, we have schooling from zero to five, and then we have after school and weekend and so forth. Um, programs. And we put, at five years old, yeah, we put the kids back into public schools. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, – So it's more of like an after-school program, a healthcare center, an educational learning center where they can continue to come in and – get additional all support. The support they need. But also the, the glue of it all is, and what people don't realize, it's it's a kid, no matter how good your school is your, or your center in our cases, the child will always spend more time at home, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're investing a kid in math and science and education and then sending them home to an environment where they're being abused or mm-hmm. there's no roof or there's no food, it's not going to work. It's a bad yeah. investment. And I hate to be that guy, but that's just the truth. So, so much of what we do is what we call household stability. Go into the child's home stabilize it, make sure the young mother's getting what she needs. Because we found that once the mother dies, um, the house becomes destabilized, right? And that's where Mm -hmm. kids move into transactional sex or crime for survival. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host and keeping a young mother alive is 65 percent of the battle wow um and so how do you go and support these these homes or how do you go into these homes do you have locals or we have family support specialists on our team who go out there into the home. We analyze what's happening in the home. We make sure there's a roof that's not leaking. There's electricity. There's um, a, there's HIV drugs available for young mothers. Um, um, basically anything they need. And you know what we always say, our sort of our slogan, you know, internally is, you know, we believe our children deserve what children all around the world deserve. Mm-hmm. And that's everything. Sure. Yeah. Having it all. Having it all. Um, and you need it all. And that's the truth. And you know what? We don't talk enough about it. And this is why I wrote the book more than anything is how much of this doesn't work. Mm. This is really tough work. It is most of what we do, most of what everyone else does in this sector doesn't work. And that's okay. And we need to take more, we need to create an environment where it allows groups like us, like Adam and Pepsi Promise, to talk honestly about what's not working without fear of losing funding or people criticizing us. Because that's the only, there's no, you know, if we were all doing half of what we said that we were doing, there'd be no poverty in the world. Nice. And we need um, just allow, and it's, 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 it's an effort not just from the nonprofit organizations, but also from the funding community to come together and say, that's really, failure is okay. Risk is, you know, this is, it really is okay. Um, you know, you got to Northern California, everyone's running around talking about all their startups that never made it, that yeah. failed, right? Right. You're in the nonprofit world, you get a summit series, not one person there will talk about a nonprofit endeavor they did that didn't, wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I don't, I don't know. Hmm. 
Yeah, and it's taken 15 years, and you're still growing and learning and probably making a lot of mistakes along the way and, and figuring out ways to go deeper into these lives as opposed to expanding right now. Um, do, you, do you have any great like success stories of young kids who've grown up and who have like maybe moved to Johannesburg and, and now is a leader in the community or making an impact in other areas of, of the country or moved outside of the country or... You know, one of the um, the families I sort of weave through my book, um, and the book is not just the narrative of building the of building a Ubuntu education fund, but it's also sort of, as I was saying, challenging the whole philanthropic community to sort of shift the conversation. But I use one family's experience, and it's the Njeza family, and we met them. Um, the oldest girl, uh, Zaytu, was 12 years old at the time, and she had two younger siblings, and both their parents died of HIV within six months of each other and they were left this 12 year old to raise her younger siblings in a shack and we move in and we the family's now been with us for over 12 years Zaytu is now has the university degree and is now working in a uh, headhunting agency actually wow. a recruitment agency um the, her younger sister uh lungi is uh is studying to be a, a radio uh multimedia dj Type thing, and then the younger brother, um, I'm sorry, the middle brother, a star, is in prison for life for armed uh-huh. robbery. So it's it's an exa- you know there's never nothing's ever perfect, right? Sure. Um, and I use that example because I want us to remember that it's there's a lot of up and down ups and downs, and there's a lot we can't control. Meaning we can work with a a family, but you know there, there's so many there's so many external people make their own decisions still whether you they have the best of everything you know some people who have the most privilege and, and grow up in the most wealth actually rebel the most sometimes <laughs> and, ha- and go to prison and that happens you know my brother went to prison for a number of years as well for selling drugs and uh, now he came out and he's the greatest jazz violinist in the world and he's redeemed himself but you know sometimes people have internal emotional battles that they can never get through and that causes trouble for them Absolutely. I mean, you know, but that's exactly right. I mean, we, we talk so much, but I think we've learned two big lessons in all this. One is, if you're not motivated to take control of your life, there's nothing we can do. Exactly. Meaning, we don't, I mean, we, we only work with what we call motivated clients. If you don't want to work, exactly. that's okay. Yeah. You know, we'll never kick you out for giving effort. Right. You know, for failing a test, you won't be kicked out. You'll get kicked out if you don't show up. If you, don't st- you know, we need right. the effort. Exactly. And the second big lesson I think we've learned is that you've got to start early. Mm-hmm. And for us, you know, most of the world, parenting begins when a child's born. And the truth is it's not when a child's born. It's, it's when the mother becomes pregnant. It's the mother educating the reason, them. Yeah, educating them and what goes into their body correlates mm-hmm. to a child's uh, mental development, cognitive yeah. skills, on and on and on. And, um, and so, you know, those are, I think the two lessons we've learned is you've got to start early with your intervention. In this case, it's with a pregnant mom. And uh, you need a motivated client. Mm, yeah. And I'm curious, you know, there's a lot of my listeners like to be in service and give back and they're constantly giving back in their businesses and and finding other ways to give back in their communities. And I'm constantly trying to encourage that. And that means I get to constantly do it myself and be the example. Um, what are some uh, some pieces of advice or some some tips you have for some people on if they have this urge to give back, but they don't know where to give back, how to give back, maybe they don't have the money to do that, what are some things they could do to 
really start living a life of service on a daily basis? What are some practices or some places they could research or dive into to see what works for them to, to start living that way? I think most important is find something you really care about. Mm. You know, what, what are you passionate about? What's going to, cause this is, like I said before, it's really hard work and you have <laughs> to have, have some connection to it, um, to stick with it. Yeah. I think if you're going to commit, whether it's money, resources, time, energy, Commit over a, a period of time. You know, I always tell people, don't give me, don't commit, uh, give us a one-year grant, for example, or a donation. I can't raise a child in a 12-month grant cycle, right? You know, stick with an organization for three to five years. Really learn, you know, ask their leadership. Get to this, you know, if any, I don't care how big or small a donor is, if someone calls our organization, says, I'd love to talk to your CEO and really understand, I'll make time for them. Mm. And ask that CEO you know, what's working, what's not. Really try to, you know, understand their leadership, the philosophy, the dedication, you know, their their theory of change. Um, you know, ask the right questions. Don't get caught up with these, like, rating agencies, these charity navigators and stuff. It's all BS. It doesn't, right. you know, they don't know what they're doing. It's about, uh, it's about getting to know the organization and believing in their leadership and, you know, uh, and, and, and committing for a period of time and saying to them straight off the bat, I understand some of what you're doing may or may not work. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Like I said, I've had, I've had Adam Braun on here and I've had, uh, um, Scott Harrison from charity water on here and, and built a relationship with those guys. And they've, they've given some great lessons as well. And, and I'm curious, what do you feel like has really worked well for you to, in the last 15 years and what is still not working What's your biggest challenge still after 15 years of, you know, struggling and getting to where you are now? What's the biggest challenge moving forward? And what's the vision for the next 15 years? <laughs> That's a huge question. So what's really worked for us um, has stay, is about staying focused, right? Uh, um, we're in one area. Not, not shiny balls like going to the next, you know, city or trying to expand or do things, but just diving deep. Yeah, being prepared and having the discipline to say no to money. Not all, I think one, you know, it took us a long time to learn, but not all money is, is equal. Mm. Not every dollar is worth the same. And so, you know, we used to raise $8, 9000000 million a year, um, but we were taking a lot of this huge foundation money and government money that was forcing us to do things we didn't like. You know, we called it uh, drug money. It was sexy. It was exciting. It would get us <laughs> to big conferences, but it was killing our soul. You know, we were getting a lot of, it was very glamorous, a lot of stuff attached to a lot of this money. Um, and having the discipline to say no, to turn it down if it's not right for your organization. Um, you know, I, I made that analogy to, you know, startups in Northern California. But uh, you're in Silicon Valley with a tech startup. You're talk, you're, you spend a lot of time talking about who you want investing in your, your company, right? What type, what should your portfolio look like? And we don't do enough of that in the nonprofit sector. And I'm really encouraging, you know, nonprofit leadership to have that discussion with their team and not, and not just take all money because it's there. Because um, a lot of it can do a lot more harm than good. Remember that, you know, as a nonprofit, you know your business better than others. You know, just because some guy made uh, billions of dollars trading Uber doesn't mean he knows how to uh, right. do global health, right? Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, you might have some great ideas, but it's a good, you know, and, and <laughs> I say that because there's, a, there's, there's oftentimes a lot of um, those with the financial means dictate the agenda. Mm -hmm. And we have to listen a lot more to nonprofit leadership. So you mentioned Scott and I have both spent 
a, major, a good majority of their careers understanding their issues, right? Global yeah. education, um, clean water initiatives. Let them tell you what needs to be done. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, okay. So where is this all heading for us? Uh, I think one of the biggest frustrations before I get to that for us has been, um, and what we continue to struggle with is we work in one little corner of the world. Mm-hmm. And how do you attract the massive funding? Now, if I wanted to expand to seven regions, we could climb to a $20 million organization pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you continue to sell people on the idea? On one little town. Yeah, and let me tell you, sustained success mm-hmm. isn't exciting mm-hmm. for people. It's weird. Like, you know, if you had your money in a... Some stock that just kept going up each year, going up, you wouldn't take your money out. You'd leave it in. Mm-hmm. But in the nonprofit sector, people get bored. They want the next big magic bullet. And what we've realized is there's no magic in raising children. Right. You know, it's, it's just time, energy, work. and a lot of love. A lot of love, a lot of hard work, a lot of energy. <laughs> That's all it is. And that, so how do you, from a marketing standpoint, mm-hmm. think Scott has just done? I mean, you mentioned Scott and Charity Water. They, I mean, I look at what they've done as a uh, model from the branding perspective. And mm-hmm. How do you reinvent yourself in a way, uh, you know, to constantly come up with new ways of selling yourself? And they do it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, really, they really do. Um, so that's what we've struggled with is, is, is you know, taking, um, constantly having to reinvent ourselves to sell the same, sure. you know, okay. same product, really. Well, what's the vision then moving forward? Sure. So it started with about four years ago, someone approached me about uh um, starting in Ubuntu in Bridgeport, Connecticut, these hedge fund managers in Greenwich did. And they said, here's a million bucks to open Ubuntu there. And at first they got really excited. We opened Champagne. We were pumped. And then by that evening, we were like, what are we doing? We don't want to do that just to prove we can do it. I have no energy to do it. I have no interest in that community. So they started us on this journey of trying to figure out what do we want to do? How? And so then we started looking at the franchising world and I learned a lot from the franchise world on how to build systems and so forth. I mean, right? I mean, Starbucks, you get the same latte anywhere in the world, but it's still a Starbucks latte. It's not your little artisanal coffee shop that knows where their beans come from and the barista can put a flower in there, whatever. And I use that analogy because I realized at Ubuntu, being in one, you know, we see ourselves as that boutique of that sort of gold standard in nonprofit work. So how do we take this now 17 years knowledge and share it with others and, um, really try to drill down on what it is we're best at. And what I figured out is if you want to study public health, Paul Farmer and Partners in Health, they do better than us, right? If you want to study global health, uh, global education, the people who do better than us. Mm-hmm. What we've really done is created a community institution that's thriving. And I say that because I look at successful communities everywhere in the world, and the cornerstones of these communities are functioning institutions. And in poor communities everywhere in the world, what's lacking are institutions, Right. And at the end of the day, it's all we are. Today, we're dealing with, you know, these 10 services. Tomorrow could be something else. We're positioned to address these other issues. And so we've fallen on this idea of creating some sort of institute where we can train um, the next generation of entrepreneurs who are committed to building community institutions who see scale not in sort of geographical expansion, but in sort of going deeper into one community. So going back to that Bridgeport, Connecticut. I like to find the young kid who grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and he or she went on to get her MBA at Yale and wants to go back and start a, you know, a center there. Right. That's who I'd want to work with, as opposed to me building the center there. Sure, that's great. That's great. So that's where I see we're heading. Uh, we're a little ways off on it, but mm-hmm. um, it's our way of taking what we've learned and sharing it in a meaningful way with a, the larger world. 
I love that. I have got four questions left for you, Jacob. And right, uh, this has been it. great so far. And I want to make sure everyone goes and gets a copy of your book. It's called I Am Because You Are. I'll tell people at the end here. Um, I'll have it linked up on the show notes, but you can get it in pretty much any bookstore you can think of. Um, check it out and uh, come back to the show notes when I share with you where to go for that here in a second. Uh, the first question of the four is, what are you most grateful for in your life recently? What am I most grateful for? Yeah. I think it's the uh, health of my, my own kids and that uh, I'm able to provide them. A, I have two little boys. Uh, my four-year-old's named Freedom. My two-year-old's Madiba after Nelson Mandela. And uh, that they are uh, just – I see the kids we work with in South Africa who are simply dealt the raw hand, right? Any of us mm. could be bored in that situation. Yeah. Um, I look at my two boys and I just think, God, there's, you know, it helps me keep everything in perspective how lucky they are. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And the second question is if you could, from all the lessons you've learned, all your travel, the work you've done in South Africa, you know, everywhere you've lived, uh, all the people you've served and helped, if you could distill down to three lessons that you've learned so far in your life. Um, that you would share with the world as the three things uh, are the biggest lessons to life. What would those three truths be about life? I think one is make sure you love, right? It's this idea of Ubuntu. It's live your life by loving those around you. Um, uh, I, this idea of Ubuntu has just changed my life so much. This idea that you know we're defined by the way we interact with one another. Uh, when I saw that really thriving in this, 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 this idea of Ubuntu alive in the townships of South Africa where there was, there were these communities haunted by this legacy apartheid and how brutally violent they were, yet this, this love for each other, this idea of community, it made me really believe in community and love and this idea of our interconnectedness. Um, and so I think, uh, my the biggest lesson is to sort of embrace that and find where you can make a difference, whether it's your own family, whether it's your religious community, your school community, wherever it is. You know, we're here for such a short time. Make sure you're making the world a better place and not just take from it. Mm. Um, I think the second lesson is to achieve anything, you better stick with it. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work to be successful at anything in life, no matter what it is. Um, and uh, I think three is remember to surround yourself with uh, with people who are smarter than you. Um, and I say that when I look at my business, I've surrounded myself with brilliant people who could, you know, and remember that those you choose to walk with, uh, you know, through life um, are the ones who will help you either, you know, move to achieve your goals and realize your potential or take you down. Mm-hmm. That's oh, powerful. I love those lessons. Thanks for sharing that. Now, if you could, the final two questions, if you could leave behind three books to the world without not being your book, but if you leave behind three books to the world um, and only three books that everyone could read in the world, what would those three books be? Oh, wow. Um, there is a book that I read to my kids every night. Um, based off of the no I'm serious all the, all the places will go nope it's called uh, the guy who adapted is Ashley Bryan who's an old family friend and it's uh, What a Wonderful World based on the Louis Armstrong song mm. and it's a illustrated book to that song and it's um, it's it's just it's incredibly powerful hmm. 
Um, and it's a children's book, but I suggest that you know, it's beautifully done and it's, uh, it's, it's very powerful. I think, uh, what's that called? Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. What, what was um, the first book called? The, the, the first one was called what a wonderful world. Okay, Ashley cool. Bryant. All right. Second one, uh, Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom, his journey, his book. Um, it, it is amazing to see someone who spent that much time in jail, mm. um, be able to come out and his, you know, his, his first words were, we will not forget, but we, you know, we will forgive. Mm-hmm. What an amazing thing to be able to do. You look around the world um, at all of the conflicts that are continuing to go on. Or, you know, I meet people who still to this day, you know, survivors of Holocaust who won't speak to. Uh, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong, by the way. Just speak sure. to a German person, or and to, to see to see this person who he himself lived through it, um, be able to to really just say uh right i mean to say to say we will we will we are going to forgive and i think that is such a um i don't know i just think it's such a a powerful uh um concept Mm. and then i think finally the idea that uh i don't know the the singularity is near which is a book i've read recently Mm. um about the future and it just captured me um, this idea of where technology is leading us, and uh, I'm, I'm totally enthralled by it. Uh, so I think those are the three: uh, how technology and humanity is uh, um, becoming one, basically. Mm. Um, and so I think those three books would be three interesting ones. Uh, That's great. Me. I love those. Well, before I ask the final question, I want to take a moment, Jacob, to acknowledge you because, as I've been listening to you during this this episode, this interview, and as I'm, I'm looking at the cover of your book right now, there's a, a little a little child, a girl, who's on the cover. She's probably like seven, eight, six, five, seven, eight years old, and she has the biggest smile on her face, and she looks whole and complete and excited about life. And I want to acknowledge you for your your vision and your commitment and your love because... 15 years of your life is a lot to serve to one community and just hearing about this, reading your book, seeing the image alone on the cover of this book makes me know that your heart is so big and you're so committed to making a change in people's lives in that community that I see the change in this photo. And so I want to acknowledge you for, you know, 15 years, man, that's a lot of your time and energy and life to stay committed to one thing and, and being focused on that community. So I really acknowledge you for your commitment, your vision to stick it out and your love because it's really inspiring. So thank you for all you do. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And the final question is what's your definition of greatness? Well, I think greatness is when you can uh, improve the lives of those around you. Jacob Leaf, thank you so much for coming on, my man. I appreciate this. I really appreciate it. I look forward to catching up uh, over a beer or coffee or something. And there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode again. For me, very inspiring to hear the stories and the lifestyle of individuals who are literally changing the world by making an impact in the lives of others. And it doesn't have to be millions of people. You don't have to say, you know, I'm going to, you know, change everything about the world, but really changing one person's life and lifestyle and mindset and supporting that growth is going to change the world by supporting 
a few people. So don't think like you have to change everyone's world. Just focus on improving yours, improving the lives of at least one other person. I appreciate you guys. I hope you enjoyed this. Make sure to share this with your friends, lewishouse.com slash 199. Share that out with your friends on social media. We are one episode away from episode 200. I can't believe we're 200 episodes almost into the podcast. Very excited about this. I'll do something special for you on episode 200. So make sure to come back when that comes out. I appreciate you. I support you. I'm here to serve you. And I love you very much for being a part of this community. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and nada yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch to Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.